So you can be making your way to Isaiah chapter number 52 this morning, Isaiah chapter number 52. I'm always, I'm always thankful and excited for an opportunity to preach to you guys, and I, I typically go somewhere in the Old Testament, uh, usually because we spend most of our time in the New, although I know uh, Scott's thinking about um, launching into Jonah, so we'll be in the Old Testament for a little while. Um, but I wanted to uh, go back there um, anyway, and to this morning, we're going to start in Isaiah 52, verse number 13, and then start getting into chapter 53. Um, it doesn't normally work this way, but I'm preaching today, and then I'll be able to preach again in two weeks. So I want to do kind of a, a two-part uh, sermon on Isaiah 53. It's kind of too much to bite off in one sermon, but since they're so close together, um, I thought we'd be able to do it in two. And I like to spend time in the Old Testament because I think it's, uh, it's good for us. It's a good reminder that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, and sometimes when I go to the Old Testament, uh, we go to places that are really unfamiliar to us, right? I think the last time I preached here from the Old Testament, it was from the book of, of Nahum. And uh, we spent the first 10 minutes trying to find where that was, right? And... Um, so this morning we're headed for the opposite problem, uh, and that is that uh, instead of going to a place that's um, not well-known, we're going to what is possibly the, the most well-known uh, chapter in our Old Testaments. Uh, and so there's kind of a, an opposite danger. There's a danger in going somewhere we're not familiar with because it all seems so foreign and, and strange. There's a danger when we come to a passage that we know really well um, because it's, it can be easy for us to kind of check out and say, I, I know this. Um, and yet what I hope uh, for us to do together uh, this morning and then in two weeks uh, is, is really a, a pretty simple purpose, and that is I want us to consider Christ. I want us to consider Christ together today. So let's pray and ask for his help to be able to do that. Holy Spirit, you are real and you are here right now. And Spirit, you, you caused these words to be penned. You breathed these things out from the very mind of God. And Spirit, you are the one that can drive these words deep into our hearts. You can do what no um, preaching ever could. You, could. you could do what no other words ever could. You can change our hearts and our minds. You can renew our minds and change our lives um, through these words because you have the power to move our hearts and so, Holy Spirit, we pray that today you would convince us of what is true in your word. I pray that you would move us to obedience and joy and delight in what we see in your word. Um, and, and I pray that you would convict us and encourage us. You're the one that needs to do it. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in Isaiah 52, and I'm going to start reading in verse number 13, and then I'm going to read all of of chapter 53. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hid their faces, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is sometimes called um, a servant song, and it presents to us a suffering servant, a suffering servant. And this morning, uh, this, this song is going to let us consider Christ together. This morning, I want to um, start a message where, um, where we see 10 marvels of Jesus Christ, right? 10 marvels of Jesus Christ. Let me just tell you what all of them are going to be, um, and we'll look at the first couple together this morning. Um, the first are found in verses 13 to 15. We will see that Jesus Christ will be exalted, yet astonishing. And we'll see that he will be present, yet rejected. We get into chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. We'll see that he will be the punished, yet we are the guilty. We'll see that he will suffer to death, yet be innocent. And finally, as Isaiah wraps up chapter 53, we'll see that Jesus Christ will be crushed, yet victorious. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53 present um, a remarkable picture of a suffering servant. Uh, so remarkable um, that this chapter has stood out in our Bibles. It, is, it has stood out as a loved chapter. It has stood out as a place to go again and again and again to learn more about our Christ. It's a, it's a part of our Bible that has entire songs written about it. It's a part of, of our Bible um, that many people have written about and preached on. Um, and yet what it, this entire chapter is trying to do is to direct our attention to Jesus Christ. And so simply today, I want us to consider Christ. I want us to consider him. And there are a couple reasons that it is right for us to, to do that. And so I, I want to start there um, kind of as an introduction. Why, why spend our time this morning considering Christ from, from this passage? Um, surely there are many other things that we, we could have said this morning. There's lots of other passages we, we could have gone. There's lots more we could, you could be thinking about right now. Why consider Christ? I want to give you a couple reasons um, why we need to give our attention to Jesus Christ, and particularly in these verses. First reason for considering Christ is really because of him. He's worth knowing. Jesus Christ is, is worth knowing. Um, 
He, he is the rightful object of our attention, of our meditation, of our thoughts. More than a hundred other things that can consume your brain right now, Jesus Christ is worth knowing. He is worth your attention. It's part of his glory, right? We say he is worthy of our praise. He's worth it. So we should consider Christ because he's, he's worth knowing. Uh, but secondly, we're going to consider Christ this morning because you naturally long to know him. If you are in Christ, there is inside you, um, and that part that no doctor can, can diagnose and the part that is invisible, there is inside you an insatiable longing to know Jesus Christ better. And it might ebb and flow in your life. There might be times that you love Christ more or, or feel more affection for him or, or want to understand him better. But if you are a Christian person this morning, then you have, I said a natural longing, I mean a supernatural. It's part of the new life, right, where, where you long to know Christ. And so to hear we are going to spend time considering Christ um, is, is welcome news to you if you are in Christ because naturally you want to know him. And in reality, not only is he worth knowing and, and you long to know him, but knowing him is eternal life. Been reminded of that verse all throughout our Kids Fest since that was our theme verse for the summer. This is life eternal, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. If you know Jesus Christ, um, then you have eternal life. And that knowing is not just an, an academic, I, I've heard of Jesus Christ or, or I know about Jesus Christ. But if, if you know Jesus Christ in the sense of I have a relationship with him where, where, where I, I love him and he loves me and I'm aware of that and I live my life in, in the awareness of Jesus and, and concerned about what he thinks and, and developing in my understanding of him, um, then you know what it is to have eternal life. Life that not only goes on forever, but a life that's marked by the quality. Eternal life is not just a statement about time. It's also a statement about how good the life is. It is eternal. It is full. So knowing Jesus Christ is eternal life. That's not, that's not all, though. Um, Jesus is worth knowing. We long to know him. Knowing him is eternal life. But Jesus Christ informs our suffering. He informs our suffering. Um, Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And this passage that we're looking at this morning is specifically focused on the suffering of Jesus, so much so they call this the suffering servant or the suffering song. And so when, when we consider Christ and we consider his suffering, his suffering informs our own. And it seems to me that right now in, in our church life, maybe, maybe always life is like this, but it just seems like there's an unusually um, severe amount of suffering that's happening right now, um, even within our church family. And, and some, of it is, some of it is physical. Um, some of it has to do with family. Um, some, some of it is financial. But there is a lot of suffering, and, and I guess that's to be expected any time, right? Because we live in a fallen world. Our world is broken. It's marred by sin. Um, and yet I've been thinking about suffering in, in a unique way lately, and I think this suffering servant will inform us about our own suffering. Whether you are suffering right now or you're going to be suffering later, considering Christ will inform your own suffering. And this suffering servant shows us the way to joy. In Hebrews 12, 2, um, listen to what it says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
When you consider Christ, you see the way to joy. Jesus knows what it is to look for a joy that's before him and endure the cross that comes between the joy and, and the now. All right, the last reason for us to consider Christ together uh, this morning is because Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And that applies to you whether you are a Christian this morning, whether you are in Christ, or whether you are not in Christ. You are not a Christian this morning. You are not a believer in Jesus. Um, This same message uh, for you is to consider Jesus Christ who is the Savior. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw men from all nations to myself. The apostles bear witness that there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so for all these reasons and more, it is right and good for us to consider Christ this morning. And so let's do that from Isaiah chapter number 52. Uh, Verse number 13 is where we're going to start where it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. When you look at Isaiah 52, 13 and the rest of 53, um, which is a little bit unfortunate, by the way, right? Um, Obviously, we all know that the chapter breaks are not inspired. It seems like it would be so much easier if I could just say in Isaiah 53, right? But we have to say in Isaiah 52, 13 and 53, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the happiest of chapter breaks um, for us, uh, but really this song starts in verse number 13 and continues all the way through chapter 53, um, and, and really this song can be broken up into about three verses, three verses apiece, um, and you'll even see that reflected. These, these first three, verses 13 to 15, um, we'll look at uh, this, the first two marvels of Jesus Christ, that he will be exalted yet astonishing. But you'll see that pattern throughout um, chapter 53 where it's, it's three, three verses a break, three verses a break. In fact, some of your Bibles, um, which may be laid out as, as poetry, might even reflect that, that spacing where you see three verses break, three verses break. It's, it's what runs throughout this song. And yet these, these first three verses show us a Jesus who will be exalted and yet astonishing. Isaiah wrote this passage uh, during the Babylonian captivity. This is a time when God's people have been taken captive. They're away from the promised land. Um, there, there is grief and sorrow that marks the existence of God's people at this, this point in time in Isaiah's history. So there is actually four servant songs in Isaiah. This is the last of them that focuses our attention on the servant of God. Um, and, and this is really right in the middle of what's called the book of consolation, um, which is really that part of Isaiah that's written to encourage God's people. Um, and I, so I say all that for a reason. Why, why does that background matter? What was, why does it matter what was happening to the Jews at this point? Why does it matter when Isaiah is writing? Well, because that, that helps inform us about what, he, what he's after. Why is he writing these words about the suffering servant? He's writing them as an encouragement to people whose entire worlds have been turned upside down. Right? They've lost their land. Um, they have family and friends who have been killed, some of them in front of their very eyes. Um, there's children that have been kidnapped. Um, their, their whole theological worldview is, is on its ear because they were supposed to be God's chosen people in God's chosen place, and now they've been removed, and now God is punishing them, and this doesn't make sense with everything else they thought to be true. Uh, and in that context, Isaiah writes to them about the suffering servant, and he intends that message to be encouraging to them, um, even as it can be for, for us. Okay, um, Isaiah is writing these words 700 years 
before Jesus would suffer on a cross and die. These, these are words of prophecy that would be fulfilled and fulfilled most clearly in Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah starts in 52.13 by saying, Behold. He says, Behold. That's part of what I've asked you to do this morning, right? Consider Christ. Isaiah says, Stop. I want you to pause. I don't want you to look. And Isaiah says, I want you to look somewhere very particular. He says, Behold. I, I want you to see this. He could have just started by saying, my servant will act wisely. But he starts with this, behold, I, 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 I want to get your attention, so everybody look here, all right? Um, when, when I'm teaching with the kids, I, I do this goofy little thing where I say eyeballs, and this is like programmed in them now. I say eyeballs, and whatever they're doing, wherever they're, they stop and they look and they go click, and they all have to say the same, and they're all looking at me. That's my way of saying, look, give me your attention, eyeballs, and they all go click. All right, Isaiah's trying to say, eyeballs, like, behold, look, I want you to focus, I want you to pay attention, look. And what, do I, what does he want us to see? He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Isaiah wants you to see the servant. Who, who is this servant that he's talking about? Well, there's actually a variety of ideas about this, um, and, and the reason is that Isaiah uses um, that word, uh, servant, at some points in his book, to refer to Israel. So sometimes the nation itself is referred to as the servant of God. At some points, um, Isaiah uses this term servant for himself, where he says, I am, I am the servant of God. And yet at this point in this song, it can't be either of those two options. It's not possible when he says, behold my servant. He can't be talking about the nation, which is even still how most Jewish people would understand this passage today. He can't be talking about the nation of Israel, and he can't be talking about himself. And you can tell that right from the text itself, right? Because as Isaiah goes on to describe the servant, he's going to say things um, like, he will grow up um, before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him. We, he says. He has no beauty that we should desire him. He's going to say that this suffering servant has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? By saying that, Isaiah has ruled out himself, and he's ruled out the nation of Israel by saying we and in our. It's got to be somebody else, okay? And obviously, we read Acts 8 uh, for a reason. Uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch asked the million-dollar question on this passage, right? He says, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And obviously, Philip jumps up in the chariot, directed by the Spirit, and Philip does what? Beginning this passage, he proclaims the good news about Jesus. All right? Philip explains to us, if we, if we would have missed it on our own, that this passage is about Jesus as the suffering servant. All right? Jesus himself repeatedly emphasized the reality that he was a servant. All right? In fact, he even connected that to his mission. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was the great servant. Jesus didn't just talk service. He also, he also lived it out, right? Um, in one of the most amazing object lessons uh, that we have in our New Testaments, Jesus lays aside his garments. He takes up a towel, and he does the work of the lowliest servant by washing the disciples' feet. Jesus was the great servant. And he followed up that object lesson by the greatest act of service that any man has ever done by going to a cross and dying for all of humanity. All right? Jesus is the great servant. He, he, um, Philip 
tells us that Jesus proved it with his, with his service. Um, That's the way Peter understood this passage. 1 Peter 2, 24 to 25. Listen to what Peter says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Right? You hear, you hear Isaiah in that? That's Peter referring to Isaiah, saying this is about Jesus. And he goes on with the same theme from Isaiah. For you were straying like sheep. Right? Where did Peter come up with that? You know, obviously, you could say the Holy Spirit, but that's cheating, right? Uh, he, I, Isaiah, right? We were straying like sheep. That's Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. Peter's referencing Isaiah, and he's saying, um, we were straying like sheep, but we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is Jesus. All right? And if all of those things weren't enough to convince us that the servant we're supposed to behold this morning is Jesus, then when you see what the suffering servant can accomplish, there can be no doubt that this is Jesus. No other person could possibly do all the things that happen in Isaiah 52 and 53 unless it's Jesus. No one else could bear sins and take them away. No one else could be crushed and yet victorious. Uh, No one else could conquer death. No one else could be exalted to the height that this servant will be exalted unless he's rightfully God, unless he's Jesus. All right? One commentator wrote that this passage speaks so eloquently about the work of Christ, that even if we added his name in this passage, it would tell us only a little bit more about the extent of his work. He's all over these pages, even if you don't have uh, the name of Jesus right here. So Isaiah says, behold my servant, and he's talking about our Christ, the Messiah. What does he say? He says, behold my servant shall act wisely, shall act wisely. What does that wisely mean? Well, that's a, that word wisely is not just that he's going to do the right thing, although it, obviously it includes that. When it says he'll act wisely, the idea is that, that what he is going to do is going to accomplish uh, his purposes. He's going to use the best means to the best ends, and it's going to work. This servant will not fail in his task. Right? This is the ultimate servant. Like We would all love to have coworkers um, or, or people we ask to do a job that will do the job without failing. And, and when it says, my servant will act wisely, it means he's going to do the job without failing. There's no way that he will, he will fail. Um, you can see this in, in part. I want to I flip back. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to uh, read you a part where this, this same word appears, and you get the same idea. And it's from 1 Samuel 18, um, just because I want you to get the, the sense of this idea of acting wisely. Uh, and it actually comes from the life of David, uh, King David. So King David has just, uh, he's not the king at the point, he's just a boy still. And he's just defeated Goliath in chapter 17. And so uh, listen to what happens in, in chapter 18. They're coming home. David's returning from striking down Goliath. And all the women came out from the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. And they have tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women are singing to one another. And they're singing this song, which was not an award-winning song, especially every King Saul, right? You guys remember the song that all of the women are singing to David? This is not winning any brownie points for David. Because the song goes like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. All right? Bad song if you're David. Um, verse number eight says, Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. No kidding, right? Uh, he's the king and a little shepherd boy has killed his ten thousands. Saul just a couple thousand. All right? So uh, he says, uh, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? All right? What more can he have 
but the kingdom. And so Saul eyes David from that time forward. But you look at verse number 12 and listen to what happens. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And verse number 14, and here's where we have that same concept of doing wisely. David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. That's the same thing. David acted wisely. He had success in all of his doings. That's the exact same thing. My servant will do wisely. David had success in everything he did because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, when Saul saw that he was acting wisely, it says Saul stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. All right? That's what this acting wisely means. It means that you're going to have success in what you do. Right? So we see that this servant um, is going to have success. And so this servant is being exalted and, and raised up in, 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 our, in our eyes. But that's not nearly enough for us to appreciate about this servant. And you need to get this from these next words. Okay, We need to get this because he says, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. When you read those words, high and lifted up, does it trigger anything in your mind? Are you, are you remembering anything from the book of Isaiah um, where he uses that same phrase, high and lifted up? Because in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision in the year that King Uzziah died. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision, and he has a vision of the Lord on his throne. And what does Isaiah 6, 1 say? It says, I saw the Lord, what? High and lifted up. Without a doubt, Isaiah 6, 1 is a reference to God, to God specifically. I think it's a reference to Jesus, but it's a reference to divinity, to, to deity. And it gets even more clear in Isaiah 57, verse number 15, where Isaiah is going to use the same term. Listen to this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Okay? There is one who is high and lifted up, and he lives in eternity. He lives in the past. He lives in the present. He lives in the future. He lives in all stages of time. He is high and lifted up. His name is holy. He is the holy one. When, when Isaiah writes, my servant will act wisely, he will be high and lifted up. He's writing about somebody who can claim deity. This is exaltation of the greatest scale, right? So when, it, when we read, he shall be exalted, don't just think this is a lowly servant. This is a cool like rags to riches story, right? With this lowly guy. No, we're talking about a servant who, who will be God himself, who will be high and lifted up. And so if we're going to consider Christ this morning, we need to start by realizing that he will be exalted. And yet, right on the heels of that, he will be exalted, yet he will be astonishing. And this is a pattern we're going to see um, in the rest of Isaiah 53, where we hear one thing that is true, and then we are really surprised by what happens next. We, we get a yet, all right? And in this case, he will be exalted, yet he will be astonishing. Look in verse Number 14, as many were astonished at you. The word astonished has the idea of like being appalled, being shocked, um, being, being amazed. What is going on? That's that word astonished. Why, why would people be astonished at a servant who's, who's high and lifted up? Isaiah is going to explain it to you. Here's why he's astonishing. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance 
and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. You see, not only is this Messiah the the greatest servant, he's also the greatest sufferer. The face of this servant will be abused more than any other human. His body will be so distorted because it's so badly beaten and bruised and and wounded that it will hardly be considered human, let alone divine. That's the astonishing part. He's high and lifted up, and, and yet his appearance is marred almost beyond human semblance. His face will take so many punches. He, he, will, he will have so many lacerations on his face from a crown of thorns that his face will almost not even look like it belongs to a person. It says his form will be, will be marred beyond that of the children of mankind. The picture is of a body that's broken and twisted and bruised almost beyond human recognition. And that is astonishing. That is shocking. That is not what we expect to follow on the heels of a servant who will be high and lifted up, and then to find that he will have a body that is completely abused and destroyed. He will have immense agony, and that will be astonishing. And yet that agony will lead to the intended result in verse 15. Because as many as people were astonished at him, in the same way he will sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and then which, that which they have not heard, they understand. The term sprinkle is clearly uh, a, a reference to the, the Jewish sacrificial system of sprinkling in order to cover sins. It's a, it's a picture of atonement. It's a priestly word, this sprinkling. And the sprinkling would happen through this abuse that would happen to this body. And so his appearance being ruined, his body being broken, that would accomplish him sprinkling many nations. In fact, even the most powerful, powerful people in the land, kings, will shut their mouths because of him. All right? Um, I, I don't use that expression. I use, the, I use the other expression. When I think about being shocked, I, I use the expression like my mouth was hanging open. Right? And that's usually, <gasps> shocked. A shocked face for me is when, when your mouth's open, you're going, <gasps> But in this case, it's the other way, right? People that are astonished, they shut their mouths. I can't believe it. I'm, I, I, I never would have seen that coming. That never would have occurred to me. It says kings will shut their mouths. They shut their mouths um, in shock. They shut their mouths in silence. There's nothing they can say against this servant and his work. They're amazed by what uh, he does. And so this servant will be exalted, and yet he'll also be astonishing, Right? They will, they will never have known. It says, that which had not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Isn't that kind of a funny, what's going on there? They, they haven't been told something, but they see it. They haven't heard something, but they understand it. All right? I, I think what Isaiah is talking about um, is, is the great mystery, um, which is Christ in us. Um, it never would have occurred to the Jewish mind or any other mind for that matter that the path to salvation was through a servant who would die, through a Messiah who would not just be a great liberating conqueror, but from, from a Messiah um, who would be killed in the place of his people. Never would have occurred to them. Never, never would have come up with that plan. Right? The reality of the gospel, beloved, the, the good news about Jesus Christ, is that you and I would have never dreamed it up. It never would have been how we would have figured out how to deal with our sin problem. And it wouldn't have been how anyone else figured it out either. So these kings that will shut their mouths and people, they, it never would have occurred to them. They, they, they never would have come up with this plan. 
And yet what they haven't been told, they're going to see it in Jesus Christ. What, what they haven't heard, they're going to understand. It's going to come to reality because Jesus is going to reveal this incredible mystery. Jesus is going, is going to be the answer to how can, how can our sin problem possibly be dealt with. Jesus is going to be the, the answer uh, to what our hearts have been crying out for, for ever since Adam and Eve sinned, which is how can I get rid of my guilt and my shame and my disgrace? And the answer is going to be Consider Christ, because he is going to be the way. All right? Um, this, the mysterious nature of Jesus being the solution um, is something that we run into in other places in our New Testaments. 1 Corinthians 2, um, Paul says that we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. All right? um, Paul writes in Ephesians 3, 4, and 6, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery there is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All right? What we, the message of Jesus, the suffering servant, is mysterious. It's something we need to be told. It's something the Spirit needs to bring to our minds. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up into glory. All right? Jesus as the suffering servant is something that never would have occurred to us, and yet he's going to show us. He's going to show us the way to salvation. All right, Jesus will fully explain how the servant can be high and lifted up and be broken and abused. So when you consider Christ, Christ is the only one that can fit this criteria. He can be God, and yet he can be broken and sprinkle many nations, revealing to us the truth that we never would have known apart from him. Okay? Consider Christ this morning. Consider how he will be exalted and yet astonishing. And yet, let's move on to Jesus being present and yet rejected. Because Isaiah realizes this is something that's hard to understand. Isaiah himself might have struggled with this, right? Peter writes that the prophets struggled to understand what or what manner of things they were talking about. And they asked who this, who this could be. And verse 50, in chapter 53, verse number 1, we move on to our next three verses. And Isaiah says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? He's going he's gonna to say, nobody believes this message, Right? Uh, that's what it, when he says, who has believed it? He's, he's looking around going, is there anybody who's, who's believed this? Because this message isn't making sense to a lot of people. And he's going to flesh that out. All right? Here, here's why people have a hard time believing this message. The message of the suffering servant. The message of Jesus. Verse number two. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, as you think about Christ this morning, you need to consider that he was present with his people and yet rejected by them. He was present and yet rejected. You see, this servant who Isaiah wants people to believe in, he comes in without any fanfare. There isn't any super special announcement that the servant is here. All right? He doesn't come with this big display of majesty and of glory. In fact, he comes in more like a little, pl- 
plant or, or, or like a tiny little root in the desert. All right? It says, he grew up before him like a, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Not this great cedar of Lebanon, which the Jews would have appreciated. He doesn't come in with this amazing glory and majesty and, and blow everyone away. In fact, it says he has no form. He has, he, his, his structure or his majesty aren't something that make us look at him. Right? When Jesus comes, he, he doesn't come with this like blazing halo and people are falling down everywhere at his feet going, you've got to be the Messiah. Right? In fact, um, Jesus um, almost never in his earthly life uh, reveals any of his glory. And when he does, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? And for a brief moment, uh, his face begins to glow and, and, and the, disciples, the three disciples that are with him are shocked. And, and they're scared, and, and they almost go out of their minds, and eventually end up falling down like dead men. They, they can't handle it, and that's, that's only a brief little picture of his glory. Jesus didn't come that way. He, he, yes, there were some special angelic announcements to a few shepherd people, right? And yes, there were those wise men, but largely, even the birth of Jesus came without big fanfare. Right? We put way more time and effort into our Christmas parties um, than, than what happened at the birth of Jesus. It was way more low-key um, than any party you've ever thrown. Right? Jesus didn't come to fanfare. And, and when you looked at him, you, you didn't see anything. You didn't have any form or some kind of majesty that we should look at him. Right? You didn't look at Jesus and go, wow, that must be the Messiah. Right? The, the disciples weren't sitting around going, you know, this was really easy to figure out. We got... Peter, James, and John, and then there's Jesus, and he is in a whole other league of his own. Like, uh, he, he's taller, he's better looking, uh, he's str- they, they didn't do any of that, all right? He, here's Jesus, just looking like a normal, ordinary Jewish man, right? Didn't look any different than anybody else. Uh, he, he didn't carry himself in some kind of way that made everyone go, whoa, he's the king of all kings. He didn't come with any kind of great majesty and, and beauty. Uh, and, and so, because of that, he was present with his people, and yet he ends up being rejected by his people uh, because he, he didn't have enough. He didn't do enough to, to be winsome to them. He, they, he wasn't what they were looking for, right? Uh, John 12 is one of those passages where uh, you can see this pretty, pretty vividly. So I'm going to read you a couple verses from John 12. If you want, you can flip there. John 12, 37. Listen to what happened to Jesus. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Right? He's quoting Isaiah 53. John is right here. And he says Jesus did signs. He did miracles. He did wonders. And yet still people refused to believe in him. Because he didn't have any former majesty to make people go, wow, that's who I want to follow. Therefore, it says they could not believe. They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then an amazing statement in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who does John say Isaiah was speaking of? It's right here. John says in John 12, he was speaking of the glory of Jesus, who would do signs, and yet he wouldn't have anything that would be attractive. And and it's even worse in verse number 3. It's not just that Jesus wasn't attractive to people. He was actually, people were repulsed by him. It says he was despised and rejected by men. People weren't neutral to Jesus. And in this room this morning, you are not neutral to Jesus. You're either for Jesus or you are against Jesus. 
No, nobody is neutral. And when Jesus came, when he was present with his people, he came to his people, and because he didn't have form or majesty, he was despised and he was rejected by men. John 1 says, Jesus came into his own, and his own people refused to receive him. All right? This is Jesus, present with his people, and yet rejected. And yet rejected. He is despised in every possible way. He is rejected, refused. People refused to believe in him. His own people refused to recognize him as the Messiah. Many times the Pharisees even accused him of being uh, of the devil and being evil. And when it came down to it, even his own disciples turned away from him at the moment of his greatest need. Jesus was rejected in every possible way, even by the people that were closest to him. Not only that, not only is he despised and rejected by men, but notice it says he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Think for just a second with me as you consider Christ. Think about, think about the sorrows that, that Jesus knew. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What were the kind of sorrows that he suffered? Well, uh, for one, you have the massive amount of insults. In, in my own Bible reading, I've been in John chapter number 8. Uh, John chapter 8, not only once, but twice, they accuse Jesus of having a demon. This is out in public. They say, you have a demon. And a couple verses later, he he answers them and they say, didn't we say you had a demon? Like, they they out loud said, Jesus, you are demon-possessed. And in that same passage in, in John chapter 8, things are beginning to escalate and things are starting to get worse. And, and, and Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil. And they say, we are not born of sexual immorality. A very thinly veiled insult about Jesus' parentage, right? In fact, they say, Jesus, you're a Samaritan, right? Not only do they question if Jesus is legitimate because of the virgin birth, but they even insinuate that Jesus is a Samaritan, half Jew and half not, right? Uh, that's, that's getting pretty insulting, right? Um, besides the fact that he's deity and how um, just blasphemous it is to say those things, um, whatever you do, do not mess with my mama, right? Um, don't be saying stuff about my mom. And, and what they're saying is, yeah, basically, Jesus, you're, you're illegitimate, right? So he's, he's bearing the griefs and the sorrows of the insults uh, throughout his life. He's, he's bearing the sorrows and the grief of what it is to be tempted. He's bearing with being tired and hungry and thirsty. All these things Jesus is enduring as a man of sorrows and being acquainted with grief. You think about grief, Jesus is around death all the time. One of his good friends, Lazarus, dead. Countless people throughout his life, dead. Think about all the sick and dying people that were always around Jesus. Um, think about how miserable that must have been. Like, stop for a second. Think about it. Do you, you guys have been, like, to a hospital, right? Or, or maybe to a nursing home or, or somewhere where people are sick and dying. Um, this is not a pleasant place to be, right? It's no fun. To, I, I, um, I'm, I'm happy to come visit any of you in the hospital, anytime you're in the hospital, okay? Um, but hospitals are not my favorite place to be, Right? They smell bad. Um, they sound bad. Like people are in there like moaning and stuff. And, and hospitals are just awkward places, right? They're sick and dying all over the place. Um, and Jesus is around sick and dying people constantly. In fact, he can't get away from him, right? Every town he goes to, everyone's like, bring out all the sick and dying and get him around Jesus. 
bring that guy with leprosy, the guy that's like missing part of his arm and half his face, and get, get him to Jesus. Let's get Jesus around as many sick and hurting people as we possibly can. That's how Jesus lived every day for three years. Think about the grief that that was to his heart as, as God with man, as he's with his own creatures who are suffering. Think about how much that must have hurt his holy heart. Think about parents. Think about how much you grieve when you have a child who is sick or hurting. And then think about the fact that Jesus is with his, cre- his creation and he's around sick and dying creations of his all the time. Think about, think about how just being in a broken world must have oppressed the perfect Jesus. He is a man of sorrows and he is well acquainted with grief. Not only that, but consider that, that here's Jesus and, and he's enduring constant hostility from sinners against himself. Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 tells us, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus resisted sin to the point of shedding his blood. That is a sorrow and a grief that would have weighed on him. And, and the coming cross loomed over all of Jesus' ministry. So he was, he, he was around grief constantly. He was a man of sorrows. He was marked by sorrow. And I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but have you ever thought about, in some ways, what a miserable life it was to be the suffering servant? The, the picture that Isaiah paints is of a servant who will suffer agony. And I think sometimes we unhelpfully um, have this, like, rosy picture of Jesus, right? And Jesus goes about, and, and life, is, life, is, life is wonderful because when you're Jesus, you have joy, joy, joy down in your heart. And, and oh, it's, it's great, and he was the Messiah, and it must have been great. Um, it must have been awful to live in this broken, sin-cursed world and to be rejected the entire time. Can you imagine Jesus, and, and, and there's sinners everywhere, and there's people saying he has a demon and saying, we don't want anything to do with you, and Jesus is just saying, I'm the solution. Like, I am right here. I, I, will, I will solve your deepest need. I, I will even help you with your little physical need, but I am the solution. And to be rejected again and again and again and to be contradicted. And, and the way that must have weighed on him to make him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I mean, we don't even like it when we're like the last people picked for the kickball team, right? And here's Jesus, the ultimate insult. God is here. Here I am, God with us, and his own creation say, we don't want anything to do with you. We're going to reject you. He's present, and yet he is completely rejected. To the point where he goes to a cross where he will bear the, the wrath of God, and he'll do that without the, the care and affection uh, even of his disciples. Jesus is a man who is well acquainted with sorrow and with grief. And yet, all these things that are true about Jesus It says, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Here's Jesus who is despised, and and I like Luther's translation of this. Luther said, we estimated him as nothing. That That was the evaluation. When you look at Jesus, the suffering servant, you look at him and you go, yep, not really worth anything. Worthless. Worth nothing. This is the suffering servant who is our Christ. So consider that he was here with us and yet completely rejected. 
What, what does that do to us? What does that do for us? We're going to finish here and, and save the rest for our, our second message, but I think even here we need to stop and ask ourselves, so what does this considering of Christ, what does it do for us? What, what does it do um, when we stop and realize that Jesus will be exalted and yet astonishing, he'll be present with his people and yet rejected by his people? Uh, I think it can do several things for us and hopefully has already done several things in your own heart. Um, Here's one thing that it can do for you. Uh, Number one, it can help you embrace being low. It can help you embrace being low. The high and holy one who inhabits eternity, it says he lives with a contrite one, um, with those who are lowly. How do we get to the point where, where we embrace being low? Well, partly by seeing God's exaltation, like Isaiah and even like Job did. What happened when Job finally got to see God in his glory? Job said, I put my hand over my mouth. I will not speak again. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I am nothing. We know from the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself demonstrates that as a Christian people, we should be willing to embrace being low. The reality is in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is close to them that are of a broken heart. Save such as be of a contrite spirit. In Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, O God, you will not despise. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he can exalt us in due time. Jesus leaves us an example that says, embrace, embrace being low. Instead of embracing um, the pomp and the circumstance and the being great, um, follow humility. When our pride is getting crushed, then God is making us like Jesus. Christian people, of all people, should have a fundamental conviction that lowliness is good. And, And we live in a world that flips that on its head. And it says you need to be great. You need to be the greatest. You need to be the top dog. Right? Um, I just saw some of these uh, the other week, and they, they drive me batty. But there's even these T-shirts, right? Have you guys seen, like, the bragging T-shirts? Um, I saw one last week that said, I can't hear you over my awesomeness. Right? Um, I even saw one. Um, I could not believe this. They, they even had this one for pastors. Um, I just can't imagine. But the front of it said, like, pastor by day, awesome all the time, or something like that. It's, it's these, like, I, I'm the awesomest. I, I'm the greatest. Um, you hear that message preached in so many different ways in our culture. Um, be the best. Be the brightest. Be the, be the top dog. Be at the top of the pile. Um, we live in a culture that, that um, minimizes the, the low, and it ridicules those um, who are low. We, we live in a religious climate that, that says that if you are not prospering in every way, healthy and, and financial, then, then you are at odds with God, and, and you need to, you, God is not blessing you because God's plan for you is to have um, unmitigated wealth and, and wisdom and, and to be the best. And, and that's not what we see from, from the suffering servant. Um, we see someone who is embracing being low. We should embrace being low all the more so when we suffer for righteousness' sake. It's, it's one thing when, when we're brought low and we're humbled just because we live in a fallen planet, right? Um, there's broken things that you struggle with every week that, that bring you low. Um, and, and yet, all the more so, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, 
Um, when, when you aren't given a promotion because you're known in your workplace for being outspoken about Christ, um, what, whatever. When you're suffering for righteousness' sake, all the more so we should embrace the position of humility um, because Jesus shows us that way. All right? We should embrace being low. Secondly, uh, I want to encourage you what to do with this. Um, I want to encourage you to run to your sympathetic priest. All right, Embrace being low, but run to your sympathetic priest. Hebrews 2, uh, in verse number 14, I want to, I want to read these words to you. Um, because here we have Jesus as the suffering servant. And what it does for you is something extremely practical. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not of angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You hear that great message of Christ as the suffering servant here in Hebrews? Hebrews Hebrews tells us he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to suffer. He had to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in order to be a faithful and good high priest for us so that he would become a, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This lowliness we see from the suffering servant, it was necessary for your salvation. And, and Jesus is a priest that can now sympathize with all of your temptation and with all of your struggle. Right? None of us can go into this week that's ahead of us uh, and say, I just wish Jesus would understand. None of us can say that. Have you ever said, I just wish somebody understood? I, I just wish there was somebody else who feels like I feel. Maybe a friend's tried to comfort you and be like, you just, you, just, you just have never felt what I'm feeling right now. Right? Jesus is the faithful high priest who, who has suffered in every respect you can imagine. And so what that does is it, is, it, is, it, is it pleads with you to run to your sympathetic high priest. He knows all about your weakness. He knows about the pain of sorrow and of grief and of loss. And so he is ready to be a faithful and good high priest for you. All right? So embrace being low. Run to your sympathetic priest. And then what I, what I hope is the most obvious application that, that you have already considered and that we need to come away with from this man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief, and it's this. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. Isaiah says, who has believed our report? Who has believed these things? And, and the answer needs to be you and the answer needs to be me. What is it that we need to believe? We need to believe that Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, the one who is, who is God, he was humbled and broken. And as we'll see even more clearly in the following verses, he did it so that he could bear our sins and our iniquities. In fact, he took our place. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief so that you could know joy so that you could be free of your sorrow and of your grief. And so Jesus lived his life perfectly on earth before dying on a cross in your place, before rising victoriously. And all that's in Isaiah 53. What we need to start with as we come to this passage is asking ourselves, am I somebody who believes? Do I, do I believe this report? John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But verse 12 says, But... 
To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. You need to believe in this suffering servant. You need to put your trust and confidence in him and only him. Don't trust your own good works. Don't trust your church attendance or your family tradition or your heritage. Trust Jesus as the suffering servant who suffered in your place because he is the only way to true salvation. Jesus is the suffering servant, so will you believe in him and in him alone.